This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2110, Must Be Held Accountable, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and yes, it's been a long time, but we are back. This is episode 2110, Must Be Held Accountable. And on the program, we are talking with showrunner Warren Light and executive producer Julie Martin, all about this incredible mid-season finale. And they give us a glimpse of what is to come in the second half of season 21. After that, guest star Nick Totoro lets us in on his portrayal of detective gone rogue Frank Bucci. And all of this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which is brought to you, as always, by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I'm here on The Squad Room with Warren Light and Julie Martin. Thank you for coming on. And we are talking about episode 9 and 10. Can't be held accountable, must be held accountable. Do I have that right? Yes, that's the right order. <laughs> yes. We, we got the title, Can't Be Held Accountable, from talking to a guy who used to run Can SVU. Can say Mike Osgood? Mike Osgood, the, the great former NYPD chief, I guess, who ran SVU and hate crimes for them for a number of years. And when we were talking to him about this sort of predator, I said, what do we need to know about guys like this? And he says, First thing you need to know, they think they cannot be held accountable. They have learned they cannot be held accountable. That is who they are. I kind of liked it right away. That's good, yeah. It was good. It was sort of his driving, it sort of drove his, the investigation, I felt, for him. Like, you got to hold these guys to account. Right, That's right. what we're doing. So why two-parter and why this story? The practicality of it was we were driven by... Uh, we needed a fall finale. We, the, we didn't used to have to have this, but these days the mid-season finale is a thing. And then people report, you know, magazines say, what are you doing? Is there a cliffhanger? There's an expectation that you're doing something big at the end of this first yeah. nine episodes. It's not just enough. You have to have a great premiere and a great season finale. You have to have a fall finale. Yeah. And you have to have sweeps months. It's it's all hype all the time. So you want... We kind of needed to be a two-parter. We needed to end some more cliffhanger where we could pick up again in episode 10. And we had been wanting to do a storyline where Rollins is in therapy for a long time. And we sort of seeded it in a little bit uh, earlier in the season. But I think some of those scenes might have gotten cut out. But... Anyway, it was like, of course, well, what if she gets held hostage at her therapist's office? How great would that be? And then this kind of predator, this is a specific kind of predator of incredible privilege, incredible pull, incredible power. And we've done those stories before. So I think there was something interesting to us about telling the story of this guy through the experience of the father of one of his victims. It was just a different approach than we've had. The teaser you have, obviously, in the beginning gets, um, we don't know if he committed suicide. It looks like he did. And then you have Ivy's journey, which is a long journey. It's a long teaser. It's a long teaser for us. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think did why an did you want to, yeah, it was beautiful. But why did you want to pack so much into uh, before the credits even came? Well, I think is the interesting thing about these stories is the grooming process that these guys pick 
they target specific girls. A lot of times they're from broken homes, from single-parent homes. They target these needy girls, and they go through uh, a grooming process to get, it's not, to get them to the point where they're willing to accept more and more and more violation until they're finally just sort of broken down and they'll do whatever the guy says. So it was like, how do we compress what takes, usually takes place over months into seven minutes? And, and the teaser is our only chance on Law & Order SVU to see things from a broken point of view. Once Act One begins, there's never a scene that isn't from the point of view of our detectives. It's always something our detectives see or ask or discover. So if we want to show that grooming process, it has to finish before Act One begins. It was one of those teasers that came to us, and I think the good ones, I think this was a good one, they always come all in one fell swoop creatively. You're sitting there and go, oh, what about if we see her do this, do this, do It's almost a struggle to write it down as fast as you right. see it. Just telescope the whole process from, a, from an innocent girl meeting someone on the street to the first time she goes, the second, third, fourth time. just And to moving on to the younger sister at the end, which is creepy and also part of this guy's game. When we know someone like Norberto's directing, we know we can make the teaser cinematic and he'll elevate it. That teaser and... It can only be in the hands of a director like Norberto. You know, other people would have been overwhelmed and taken years to shoot it. And is the way that Grania lords Ivy in, is that based on, does that really happen that quickly? And just like with the dog in the park and the girl, and I mean, is It's it... a sweet approach. They, I mean, they actually have people in schools helping steer girls to them. They have different approaches, but they're, these procurers... Often the woman makes the first overture. There are these women who are in strange, I would say, sick relationships with these guys. And, and in order to stay connected to the guy, you keep procuring new young girls for him. And the girls guard, you know, a 14, 15-year-old Ivy might have been suspicious if a guy approaches her on the street and said, hey, have you ever modeled? But this well-put-together Grania, beautifully dressed with a cute dog, it's just... It, you know, it's a lure. It's a, as a real lure. You're going to get to model. You're going to get paid for it. Um, if Ivy doesn't mention parties. that she, her mother's not living with her, does Grania then back off? Is Grania part of elicits, had Ivy not mentioned that Grania would have, well, she does elicit it actually in, yeah. in that line about. If uh, Ivy had said, I can't do anything without asking my mom, my mother and father right, and, right. and my grandparents and my extended supportive family. I'm not sure my family would go along with that. That would probably be the uh, end of the conversation. Grania tests, right? How, and actually when Ivy's aunt shows up, Grania obviously has dealt with certain relatives in the past and right. just bought them off too. There was a song in the teaser that we were unable to use. We won't mention what it was. And then uh, you came up with a last minute song to fill in by Monty Diaz, which I thought was great. Does that happen a lot where you have a piece of music and the subject matter is just not okay with the artist? Yeah, or with the... It can the, happen, yeah. Uh, uh, or with the company. I once wanted to do, you know, we had this horrible predator, William Lewis, and I wanted to use something from Frozen and that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> But this one was like kind of okay until it was clear what was going to be going on in the teaser, right? And then it was like, we're not, we don't want to be part of it. I think they were worried because uh, in the teaser, you see Ivy after she's been sexually assaulted. And I think that was too disturbing. I, you know, someone said, well, why don't you call the artist and explain to her what the episode's about? And I don't know the artist. And I didn't think that was, I respected, uh, you know, I, I don't like to talk people into things. That's yeah. Like so we open with the episode, Rollins is in therapy, and then at the end of that, she says something about a doorknob comment about her father. 
Kelly was on and she said, that's just an indication that Rollins is not really into therapy. She leaves things for the last minute. Are you guys planting a seed for something later with her father? Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> depending on, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Rollins family life is, uh, it's just a font for us. So, uh, uh, you we know, never quite dealt with her father. We've dealt with her mother, her sister. Yeah. And so dad's a missing piece of the puzzle. But I think when she's in the hotel room or motel room, barely a motel room with Turturro, I think she tells us a lot about her father. A few, yeah. you know, well, all men, all dads cheat, my, you know, and we get a lot more information as does Bucci, Detective Bucci, we get a lot more information about her family than I think she's given her therapist at yeah. this point. I mean, not to knock therapy at all. <laughs> or, or Amy Hargreaves, who's a wonderful well, actress and plays a wonderful therapist. We thought it would be kind of, we thought it would be interesting if Rollins sort of gave herself therapy in a way. Like she's so, she's such a guarded person that she's not able to express her feelings to people that she thinks cares about her. So it's almost like a, if, if she knows this guy doesn't really care that much and she's got nothing left to lose at this point, she's going to be like more honest. She's also that using moment. these sort of confessions and disclosures in an effort to gain rapport with him and trust with him and soften him up. So she's not her... Because she's able she to... She can justify it to herself. The only right, reason she's right, telling right. the truth is to get something out of it. Yeah, she can have insight into herself if it will help the case. Otherwise, it's, it's you know, it's... it's Indulgent, uh, I think yeah. she feels. Do you have the father comment in the beginning because you know she's going to talk about her father later? Are they connected in your mind when you're writing? Yeah, and also this is an episode about fathers and fathers of daughters and things like that. Yeah. So it's, uh, we always try. We don't always succeed. You, you don't want to waste anything. You don't want the therapy seem to be about something that has thematically no tie to the episode. And speaking of Totoro, I, Frank Bucci was in part 33, which I thought was a pretty awesome, amazing bottle episode. That was right? a great episode, yeah. 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 I really enjoyed that. did a great job. And, but he's not in it for very long at all, but he must have made an impression on you guys to bring him back, right? He, he stayed yeah, with me. He I, sta yeah, he was actually with the, the episode ended up being very long. Part three, there was there was a, a lot more material ended up on the on the cutting room floor than actually ended up on the aired show. Um, and the, the rapport between him and Rollins was really special. And the, I want, we wanted a guy who had access to a gun. That led us to the possibility of a cop. And when I came back this season, I looked at three years of episodes. And for some reason, that little moment in the waiting room between the two of them was one of the things that stayed with me. And I think he's quite very much an organic, intuitive actor. And she is. They're different types, but they're not analytical actors. They're not. They just feel it and do it. And I thought it'd be kind of interesting to have that sort of a buddy film between and we the two set, of them. And we set up that he cares about his, his kids and that he was in, in a troubled marriage. Yeah. So it's sort of all those elements. Uh, it just fit, fit, was like, fit wait a minute. Into this character. Magic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Really it's got, like, hey, this yeah. guy, we never said, luckily never said whether, we. I think we just said kids. We never said whether he had sons or yeah. daughters. Wow. It dovetailed. That was, you know, and we wanted him obviously to have two daughters. She has two daughters and it retrofitted well. Bucci loses his patience with what's going on, understandably. And kind of, I guess, crosses the line and goes over the edge. And I just had an idea, and I could be wrong, about extreme measures. And we have Bucci. In the previous episode, we dream of machine elves. Rollins kind of crosses the line, I think, takes the DMT and gets a little too close to Adam Arkin's character. And murdered at a bad address, we have a sexual assault, which leads to a murder being solved. But only because D.A. Keene, who has dementia, 
thinks he's signing something different than what he's doing. And then in, down low in Hell's Kitchen, Matthias fakes a crime, and that's the only reason you catch Moran. Is there a theme of regular ways of, cat, <laughs> of solving we, crimes are working? Are we rewarding bad behavior? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, what's funny, we had all these cops and detectives and everybody come talk to us. A number of cases that they discussed that came to them because somebody flipped. Because, well, look at the um, the college scandal that ended up involving Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin. Why did that happen? They arrested a white-collar guy in securities fraud, and he flipped on the college guy. I believe in the... Um, the randomness of the universe. I look at my career and there have been moments all along the way where just, I, look, the only reason I'm at Law & Order now is because I ran into a playwright named Teresa Rebeck on the corner of 10th Avenue 20 years ago when I was desperately looking for a job and she had heard that afternoon that they were looking for one more person in criminal intent. It was a chance meeting. And I just think chance plays a part. You don't want it it's tricky when you write. You don't want a deus ex machina. You don't want total randomness. But there are moments that if you're lucky or your detectives are on top of it, they seize those moments. You know? I think sometimes it's uh, you just get lucky. I worked on homicide for many years and the homicide cops down there said you could work a case to death. You could shoe leather. You could talk to everyone. And the guy that did it will end up confessing in a bar to the bartender that you may know only peripherally just by chance like two years later. And that's how you crack the case. So, like, so you're, you guys are not trying to say something about the system? No, I mean, the, uh, not. I mean, I'm trying to say a lot of things about the system, but not in this context. I, I guess I'd say. I think. Uh, well, I like the fact that our cops are so dedicated and they're so great at their jobs and they're so smart. But there's so much about crime and these cases that you just that nobody can control. The, this only this theory of mine that random events can dictate. This only works if you're applying yourself at every moment. Because I could have thought when I ran into Teresa on the street, that sounds good. I'll follow that up in a couple of days. Right. Or you yeah. could have been a not good writer. You know, or I, uh, <laughs> instead I watched every episode that they'd ever right. done and tried to come, you know. So I like that element of hard work, discipline, and luck. So obviously Bucci and Rollins, they have this short scene. We learn that they understand each other. Rollins seems to uh, be forgiving of him in ways that, maybe other people would, you know. I think they both recognize in each other that they've made a lot of mistakes in their life. Yeah, damaged souls. When she pulls the gun on him in the motel and says, uh, you're not going to understand this, but I want to get back safe and I want you to get back. And you're coming, I'm bringing you in. I think he's staggered by that. But there was something about the two of them that felt right. And there's, there, there's a damaged quality to the They're two of misfits. them. They're misfits. They haven't had good luck romantically. They both love their kids sort of the kid that's a priority in their life. So there's that connection. You have two kids as well? Mm -hmm. You say we, we all do. Um, do you put yourself into the character's head of something happening to your children when you're trying to write a character like this? How much, how deep do you have to go when you're writing? Yeah, I guess Sometimes. so. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You, you know, you, it's your worst nightmare as a parent. And for me, his rage, actually, he's a Southern Italian. My mother's side of the family is Southern Italian. I understood that, it seemed what that rage that to others would seem in, insane that to me seems like oh, he reacted like any of my cousins yeah, would. Yeah, you yeah, know, when he's screaming in the hospital sense. or does anybody listen to me? Yeah. Yeah. It's usually the loudest person in my family yelling that yeah, when I was right. so I, I get that that utter rage and frustration and and it's not easy. Parenting is not an easy task. Well, those are the you know those are the hard, some of the hardest scenes to write is the cops coming to your door and telling your kid has been killed or your kid is missing or. 
daughter's been or, assaulted. Or a machine elves, just those two parents realizing they'd lost their kid. That was, for us, one of the key scenes of that episode. And I, I think... I think you do put yourself in that, like, wow, how would I... I mean, you can't do that for too long, but at least just to get started in the scene. It's like, so how, you would do, I, you get, how would I react if cops came to my door? And as far as Getz, and Vincent Carthizer was on last episode, and he was talking about Getz has something on everyone. He's not necessarily smarter than everyone. He's not necessarily, you know, how does someone get to that point? Money. <laughs> well, you supply, you have something that gets everybody into the tent, and then we're in the tent. When they're in the tent, you tape and record. I mean, there are, there are, I believe, rumors that Putin has something on everyone in the, in the Senate. But he has something on half the Senate, you know. So powerful guys retain power. It's, it's, it's a well-worn path. You retain your power by the ability to put an arm on people who owe you one way or another. Right, and it's either, it's like blackmail-type photos or you loan the money or you do favors. Yeah, you just get your hooks into as many people as you can. What do you think is motivating Getz? I think it's his obsession with these girls. I think about guys like that, and it's the power. The power, because I think he has he gets the the kick of power well, over all these guys. These as girls, well. it's about power. Uh, these judges, it's a, it's a, he, he can get he, everybody to do anything he wants. I mean, that's, that's I mean, what he he can get fourteen year old girls to do what he wants. He can get a judge to do what he wants. He can get uh, we we imply that he can get you know senators. He, that, so he gets off on, the, on rush. the power, the rush of that, and the control of that, and being better than everybody. He's incapable of having any empathy for anyone. He views all human behavior as transactional, and, and he must win every transaction. And he told me he chose to play him as not even trying to find any good. He was not interested in his backstory. He didn't know how, want to know how he got there. He just said everything he was doing was for himself, and there was absolutely no good in him. And that's how he I love that. it. <laughs> <laughs> he was terrific. I, I, thought, was so... I, I thought it was one of the purest performances, yeah. cleanest, purest performances. You know, a lot of times we have a hard time casting pe men to play the bad guy. The, the number of actors who say, I really want to be on the show. I just don't want to play a bad guy. And I'm he like, seems well, so happy. He was so <laughs> that's relaxed. That's what was so interesting too. about his character. Yeah. He, like, really enjoyed everything that he was doing. He enjoyed his interactions with the cops, his, like, interactions with the girls, with everybody. He was uh, like having, was, he was the, having a great time. Because a, a lot of times actors come on and they say they, they try and see both sides of the character. And he was like, nah. I'm not I'm sure just, there is another side to yeah. a guy like it. But he was so comfortable in that world. When the, when Ivy arrives or Mil, little Millie, Millie arrives at the mansion, it's like, almost 13. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, it was creepy when we wrote it, but he, he, he added a, another dimension yeah. of creepiness to it. <laughs> Switching gears a bit. So... You start episode 10 with Benson and Noah, and, and she's talking on the phone to Noah, and that's how she finds out what's going on. Why that teaser and, and for that episode? Why do you start there? Well, we, it, it was literally where we left off in episode 9. It was like the last scene, I think. was Right, the last scene, he breaks in, and then it's Benson's rare like, for us. It's, it's five minutes later, and she's on the street. Yeah. And again, it's a mother-son thing. I'm still worried because Noah never gets that Chinese food. I don't know what he is. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last scene was in her office saying, I'll be home, I'll pick up Chinese. So then she got she's distracted. got the Chinese, I'll be right home, Noah. There he is on the phone. She doesn't see him again for four. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm still, the Chinese food's in her car. <laughs> I, I've had a lot of anxiety about that. Well, Getz had already left on the yacht, you know. Things yeah. were, she, she, well, she couldn't do anything more that night. So I was like, well, I, I got my kid at home and I promised him Chinese, so. 
And so Benson, as captain, is it harder to write for her in his new position, her new rank? What's different about it for you guys? Well, I, I, I think what's fun for us is having Carisi as a new DA and Kat as a, not even a detective. There's some new stuff for There's her to do. There's new relationships, yeah. Carisi is now, she's not Carisi's boss necessarily anymore. Um, At all. So that right. dynamic That dynamic changes. Changed. She's got this she kid. She still thinks she is. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we keep explaining he's a district attorney. And he kind of still thinks she is too. So, but, <laughs> you know, and then there's this this uh, kid, Kat, who's, uh, whose heart is in the right place and who's smart but is green. And that's scary when you're the boss. Mm-hmm. Some of that may have come from the fact that we have... <laughs> Uh, half of our writing staff had never done a TV episode before this season, and that kind of causes some anxiety at times. But it works out. But you have mm-hmm. to, you know, we, we have an episode. And we brought in Demore too. Yeah, and we Garland. brought in Demore, so she has a new boss. Too, so. uh, you know, and I think uh, objectively, she's uh, as captain, she'll be less likely to be involved in as many street fights or pursuits, or if, if an episode takes place, uh, it, it uh, you know the trick for us is I don't want her to turn into that character who just says, go back out there until you find something. So picking the moments where she gets involved uh, and where is she politically in terms of both Carisi's boss and her new boss and that, that kind right. of and stuff. It's like, and you just, you really have to just take another pass at thinking like, would a captain really do this? If there's like a, you know, a guy that works in a used car lot who may or may not have seen something that happened two nights ago. She's not going to go to the used car lot and talk to the guy and ask him what he saw. I mean, there are certain things as a captain she just doesn't do anymore. Do you miss having her do those things? Well, for me, it's kind of fun to have uh, like Kat and Finn together to have Kat. I think the most helpful thing for us is with a new character in the squad room and a new DA, it just changes the the different uh, combinations that you have. I worried about coming back, and it's just Finn, Rollins, Carisi, Benson. The, the, we've played every pot. There's Finn and Rollins, there's Rollins and Carisi, there's Carisi and Finn. You know, we, you've played A, B, C, D out. This lets us have a, a variety of combinations, including Carisi going with Cat in one episode up right. to a country club. Or yeah. In the episode we have coming up, it's Cat-centric, but Benson really wants to take her under her wing, so so it's Benson and Cat do a lot of the interviews. To, to sort of or I like Finn mentoring Cat, yeah. saying things like, you know, just in general, think a yeah. little. <laughs> and there's one uh, actually where she kind of says something. Do you think Rollins might be in cahoots with Bucci, which was not received very that well? Does not that does well not go over well. <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to show more about Carisi and Benson there or about Kat? Or? You know, I think it's a legitimate question for her to ask as a new person, but yeah. but they just can't hear it. Yeah. They're too loyal and they know it's not possible. And and what right. planet did that I mean, that's a great from? perspective to show someone who doesn't know everybody all that well. And she, she has respect. I don't think she meant disrespect or, or yeah. meant it in a, it's just like, in her mind, it was a perfectly legitimate investigative question. And in Carisi's mind, if he could have, if his looks could kill, they would have done that <laughs> yeah. right there, you know? Yeah, and obviously, I mean, Carisi's losing it in episode 10, and uh, I just wanted to talk about what you guys were thinking when you were writing that stuff. Is he feeling responsible? Is he feeling... He's feeling all of it. He's a rescuer. He's a savior. He's her confidant. He's He's got some complicated and, feelings. And gets got off, even though that wasn't his fault in any way. I, I just feel that that character is 
there, takes one, everything so seriously. It, it yeah. takes a lot of responsibility. That there's one scene where he's furious on the street at Olivia for letting him ha get his gun back when it really would have been hard to take away, and he's furious at him at, at the courts for letting gets off and he's furious in himself for not I should have coming. thought of something I mean even though there really wasn't anything he could have done you know it's just uh, there are some people who only blame others when things go wrong he blames himself others the universe he's in in uh and 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 he says something to the judge about if something if if something happens to her and what he's I think he's he's he says you know you'll have blood on your hands and the cops won't talk to you he's more or less saying if something happens to her I will hunt you down and kill yeah, you, you know? that's what it feels yeah. like that's personal for him I mean he's very close with yeah. with Rollins obviously so at the end you know obviously everybody comes back and everything's okay I'm not entirely sure what's gonna happen to our friend Frank Bucci but um, he gets a year he gets yeah. a year I, I think a, a deal is cut okay I think they say that in there at some point yeah too. Uh, yeah, they're not going to, he's, he's going to. So Rollins doesn't want to go to trial. Hargraves, the, the shrink doesn't want to press charges. Rollins doesn't want to go on the stand and testify against him. A, a deal is cut. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he, didn't, he didn't touch Rollins. He didn't hurt her. He didn't. Uh, she's very clear about that because she's. Yeah. And then she has her scene in the elevator where we see her really break down and, and see how much she yeah. was struggling yeah. there. Well, how much was she holding to get? When you know when you're like on duty and the adrenaline, you're in a like a family crisis or a horrible situation, and you hold it together, hold it together, hold it together, and then it resolves, and then you collapse. And that's I think what we were going for. She yeah, suddenly hits, sort of it hits you. You have permission to not be strong with someone that you trust is going to take care of you and not right. judge you for being emotional about things. Which I feel like she and Carisi have that relationship. So at the end, what gets Vincent said to me that he was told suicide is the ultimate fu for a character like this, but we weren't totally sure what was going on. Um, maybe you could discuss the ending. After the suicide, we go to a, a shot of Getz on a gurney being loaded into an ambulance. We go to a news report of his death. We pull out. We're in the squad room. Finn and Cat are watching. Cat is convinced it's a, a, a scam and that he, a, a substitute. Homeless man's body was put in that bag, and he's at, and that gets is on an island. Finn thinks somebody got to him. Benson comes out of her office and says, "A lot of people wanted him dead, but what really gets me pissed, what really angers me, is that these girls don't get their day in court with him." And so, in answer to Carthage's theory, I think it was a, a, a big fu. Like I, I'm done. I've had my run, you and I still can't me. be held. You know, he's held accountable. He's jailed. I think he's done the math. They got my lawyer. This isn't going to work out. Uh, nobody tells me I have to show up. Nobody tells me what to do. Steve, I'm Steve Getz. So. And then that's another. That's another theory <coughs> that he paid the guards to look the other way. Yeah. I imagine he did that. But I, the, multiple theories. I know people have these conspiracy theories. It's so hard to get any regular job done, getting people to show up on time and do what they're going to say and pay you when they say. The notion that somebody can orchestrate a giant conspiracy theory that works always staggers me. It's, yeah. I go with the Occam's razor. It's, it's all we can do to get an episode out, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what's happening in the second half of season 21? Anything to look for or can you give anything away? You will see Carisi begin to... Uh, Try cases. Carisi has his first trial. That's coming up. Nice. Um, he has a dark night of the soul, but ends up, I don't know, can we give away? No, he you can't give away. <laughs> he either wins or loses or gets a, a hung jury. I will give that much away. But he's going to trial. Right? He's going to trial. All right. I mean, one of the things is, is different characters 
stories will come to the fore as the season continues. Yeah. So we have we'll, a cat-centric episode. We have a, a Chief Garland. Chief Garland episode. has an episode coming nice. up. Get to yeah. know a little bit about the chief. And there's some, I'd say there's some shocking turns in the middle of the season, yeah. some really there's, difficult there's, turns. There's going to be a little, there's going to be some more tragedy, more trials and sadness for Benson, I think, yeah. and, and then she and will then, come out of the other one, the one hopes she comes out of the other side. Yeah, yeah. Towards the end. And do we have any other new characters coming that might stay for more than an episode? Uh, none that we can talk about at the moment. I, I don't think we're going to meet a detective in episode 14 who's an interesting guy. I, I feel like we're a little short on male, male detectives, detectives in the squad room. Yes. So I, I liked the guy... Uh, in the China Counselor, it's Chinatown episode. Uh, Officer Chen, uh, yeah, no, Joe Chen, Joe Chen, uh, Nelson, I think. Uh, and I we introduce another detective in episode fourteen. So maybe these guys will uh, sub from time yeah, to time. It's great to open up the world a little bit. Um, or when we enter a world that none of our detectives have expertise in. It's nice to borrow a detective. We borrow a detective from the subway crime unit in 14. We'll be, I like the idea of, of um, subbing and letting yeah. people sit in, I guess, is the uh, musical equivalent. Well, maybe doing an episode where we go back to uh, Vice or Narcotics. Well, Warren Light and Julie Martin, thank you for coming on the squad thank room. Thank you, Anthony. We'll see you again soon. Very nice. And thank you for the podcast this year. I think the fans are enjoying we're, we're enjoying it. I hope the fans are. I hope so, too. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So Warren and Julie touched on Nick Totoro's incredible portrayal of Frank Bucci. We sat with Nick and dug into his performance. Nick Totoro, welcome to the squad room. Ah, thanks. Good to be here. <laughs> so last season you appeared in an episode called Part 33, which was one of the best received episodes of the season. Did you know you'd be coming back? No, I wasn't sure because um, I thought at the beginning, you know, I might have a a shot at being some kind of romantic interest. That was kind of like what I was feeling, maybe a little led to believe that maybe there's a possibility because I thought we had good chemistry. But then the scene got cut down, so I was a little disappointed. But they were like, well, it wasn't because of, you know, anything personal. Just I don't think it had much to do with the storyline, my scene. I kind of came out of nowhere. But um, I liked the character because it kind of felt like, oh, maybe they need a guy who could be dramatic and kind of funny. So I thought, well, comic relief maybe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So I did think there was a shot, but then I was like, ah, probably not. So when this came, I was like really um, surprised. So when they change, because they change showrunners, as you know. Between, yeah. So in your mind, are you more like affiliated with the other one? Is that how it works? Like, or... Yeah, because the guy that recommended me uh, was the guy who I knew from Blue Bloods. And um, Alex Chappell, I guess, was a fan of mine. And uh, and I guess Michael Churn Churn or whatever. I didn't know him, but I knew Alex. And he was like, oh, when they read this, they go, I know the guy, the, the right guy yeah. for this. So I kind of liked the tone of that because I did somewhat of a character like that, this sergeant that I did for a couple of years on Blue Bloods. And um wasn't Renzulli, but... I felt like, ah, oh, this Poochie guy could be a fun character, you know? And we had a blast. I loved the scene. Um, I mean, they gave me like an extended version of it. And I liked working with Kelly Giddish. Uh, I thought she was really, uh, I thought we kind of hit it off just on screen. And she was fun to work with. 
So where would you say Frank Bucci is in his life when we meet him again in, at the beginning of episode nine? It seems to be that, you know, he's retired. He's had some problems with his marriage, and obviously um, he's got some personal dilemma now with his daughters, and um, something happened in his life where things are not as what he hoped it to be. You know, I thought he, he seemed like he had a, you know, things weren't that bad, but things kind of took a turn for the worse, just personally for him. He's extremely hard on himself. I think. Yeah, I think he is. I think he's I think he's a good guy. You know, I think he's still a good guy, even though, you know, the outcome of this could be, but you know, maybe there's a way that he could be evaluated psychologically and stress drove him to extreme measures. So it's building obviously. There's at first gets comes after him in the car, but there's the scene in the hospital after that where you kind of lose it and start screaming at no one ever listens to you and yeah. I was just wondering what, in your mind, what the backstory for that was, that you were able to portray that. Well, I just feel like a lot of times, even in my own life, I've been married and all this stuff, so I kind of know, like, you know, I say something, but I'm never heard. So I can relate to, you know, I say the same thing over and over, but they just don't hear me. Even if I go to therapy, I could say, this is what's bothering me, or even in my marriage, maybe... A lot of stuff just come out of you and just, you know, like, well, where did that come from? But it's like it came from a personal place because I've been feeling all these things for 20 years. Now, all of a sudden, I exploded and all these things came out of me. So I kind of make up my own backstory a lot of time with things, you know, I mean, because I relate it to my own life a lot. I've been there. I've been married a good portion of my life and I've had kids and, you know, this is stuff that I can relate to. I've talked to almost, you know, all the actors that have been main characters and most of the guest stars. And they seem to have different techniques. Some people draw on their own experiences. Some people need a full backstory for the character. Do you find, it's not really important for you to know everything about Frank Bucci's life for you to portray that? No, not at all. Because um, a lot of times I don't want to know that much because I don't want it to become too much in my head. I'm more of a instinctual guy. I mean, like I did a part in The Black Klansman and... I played like this bomb expert for the KKK, not to go off subject, but That's fine. I didn't even read the script and I didn't really even want to know because the character comes out of nowhere. And then like what I did in the movie was way better than what I thought, <laughs> but maybe it was because I just wanted to keep it fresh, you know, and, and try to, you draw a little bit from yourself, but I don't need to know that much backstory. I mean, a lot of times in television, they want to, you know, you don't know the whole story. I'm like, well, I don't need to know. I just need a little inkling and then I can make it up myself. And obviously, if you're going in the wrong direction, someone will say. Yeah. They'll, that's I, their I mean, job, right? As director. That's their thing to try to make me steer me. You know, even like a lot of times they'll give me ideas and I'll tell them, well, don't give me any results. Don't tell me what I'm feeling because I got to still feel it. A lot of times they're like, you're feeling this. And I'm like, how do you know what I'm feeling? How do you really know what I'm feeling? You know, you, you just make up your mind like, because you have to do it to go, oh, you might feel something opposite than what you thought. Because a lot of times, you know, it's like written a certain way, but it doesn't always play that way. That's interesting. You know, we had a line one night where, you know, she said something to me and I, she was apparently insulting me, but my response was like, okay, it was not that strong. It was just like seriously or something, but I had to physicalize and grab her to make it come alive. Sometimes, like, what's on the page doesn't mean it's always going to be in the execution. You didn't take it as an insult. 
Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't take it from the way it was what I saw on the page. I mean, it, it was like kind of a half, but it wasn't like you know when someone says something, it's like your response is way, you know, it would be stronger. So when I made it physical, that's when when I was like, you know, when I went at her, then it came alive. Then it like actually came really alive. Because, you know, it's two different things. What's on the page and then, you know, sometimes you have a great script and then sometimes for whatever reason it doesn't translate. You know, and then sometimes you read something, it's like it's okay, but then the execution of it is what's really good. What do you think prevents something from being great? Is there a way to figure it out or it's just how it is? I mean, it's, it's funny. I can't always put my finger on it because sometimes you go, wow, that read really well, but for whatever reason, maybe it just didn't play as well. But it's hard to say, you know. I mean, because sometimes I'm something's written, and you know, and then it's nailed, and it's like beautifully. You know, it's just that's sort of like the trick of something. It's like reading a script. Like sometimes you might give somebody something to read, but they don't really know how to read it because they might not be reading it with the right rhythm, the right cadence. You know, like they're reading it, but it's like you know that's why scripts are hard to read. It depends. It's like if it's your sensibility. Like I might see it and, and go, oh, I, I could find something humorous in that. But oh, it wasn't funny. I'm like, well, it wasn't funny to you, <laughs> but it might be funny to me. You know, because I, I did stuff before like that on other shows. I did it on Blue Bloods and they were like, we didn't even write it funny, but you somehow made it funny. <laughs> I'm like, well, then that, that's me because there's humor in everything. Right. There's even humor in, you know, life and death and cops. It's not all like, you know, these guys joke around. I laugh a lot when I'm watching these SVUs and I get the same thing. They're like, that wasn't supposed to be funny in it. But Scandavino often when he's crazed makes me laugh. You know, mm-hmm. it's like he's just like a funny guy. And I'm right. Like, you know, he is like kind a, of a funny yeah, person. Yeah. And, and he's running around and he's yeah. like trying to be a new, uh, yeah. you know, the ADA. And he's like, and I and, laugh. And Kelly's very funny. Kelly's very funny. I mean, funny. she's very yeah. funny. I mean, I, I, I don't know the show that well, but she's got a good sense of humor. And I, I would always like, Take advantage of that because yeah. because that's, you know, when you have people that could be naturally funny without trying to be funny, that's a gift. Yes. Not everybody has that. Yes. You know, not everybody for whatever reason. You know, I haven't spent much time with police officer, but I would imagine there's a lot of joking around in the squad room, right? There's yeah. got to be. You can't just oh, be yeah. talking about doom yeah. and gloom all the time. Oh, no, no. I mean, I've played enough cops to know and I've been around enough of them to know that, you know, it's a lot of humor, a lot of jokes. Um, these guys, you know, they deal with all kinds of crazy things. So to keep themselves sane, they have to laugh some too. Yeah. You know, you got to have those light moments. You can't just, you know, even when you watch like The French Connection, a great movie. It's funny, man. Yeah, it is. It's funny it's stuff. It's true. You know, like, yeah, I was on NYPD Blue and Sipowitz was, you know, Dennis Franz. He was very funny at times. So I think Bucci is kind of, a, you know, he's got a good sense of humor too. I think he's kind of a funny guy. It's just that now he's under a lot of... And I tried to find some light moments between us because we he kind of likes, I think, uh, Rollins. Let's talk about the scenes in the hotel and the car. And and I also thought maybe Rollins liked him. Yeah. I kind of got the sense that she did kind of like him, even though she, like, turned him down initially. But I think she has a soft spot for him. Maybe she likes him more than she says. It's not always so black and white, but I feel like there's something there. And I think you'll probably see it. I mean, people could see, like, they can see chemistry, you know what I mean? Like the camera doesn't lie. And when people have that little, you can't put your hand on it, but like a little sparkle between each other. It could be very different, but like we're like, 
you know, we're like an Oreo cookie. So, but it's, I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually a good relationship. It's, it's an interesting relationship. I don't know where it's going to go, if we'll go anywhere, because he's kind of in trouble. Yeah. But you never know. But in the hotel, was that a hard scene to film? I mean, was... It was. It was a little, de- you know, because it was, like, delicate. Because he was, like, you know, he... I was trying to have some, like, light moments with her, too, because it was, like, she was saying some things to him, and then he was, like, telling her, you know, you don't really know me. Right. You know, you never even thought about me, all this stuff. And and it was interesting, because we had some real... We had some real connections there. But she was, like, no, I did like you. I actually do, but, you know, you just... You know, I got my problems, and uh, I I really like the scene. Is she telling the truth there, or is she just trying to get out of the? You know, what, is she just trying to wear you down so that you'll? I think she's kind of telling the truth. I believe that she likes him. I guess are you you're playing it that way? You're playing that you believe her. Towards the end of it, I am. Yeah. You know, stop, knock off the BS. You know, right. I think you know you're saying that because you're like maybe you were disappointed she didn't respond. Why didn't you respond? I. I thought you liked me. And she was like, I did like you. I do like you. And it's funny because people can say they won't admit it. But, you know, like I said, I, I, you know, you either feel it or you don't. And I, I think there's, you know, she's had a lot of different guys and this and that. But I think Bucci would have been, like, very different for her. And Bucci would have been in a very different place had things worked out maybe, right? Yeah. I wish you would have went that route, to be honest. <laughs> but I'm I'm very happy for the you know that they brought me back and and thought of me for this. I mean I'm not, you know I'm very happy and very f- flattered. But uh, really I would have liked to maybe gone the other route. <laughs> right. Well, Nick oh. Totoro, thanks so much for sure. coming on the Squad Room. My pleasure. All right. Hope to be back one day. Yeah, I <laughs> hope you're back. Too. Yeah, I loved it. So that's a wrap for the Squad Room. Next week, we welcome Mariska Hargitay. Please remember to subscribe to the Squad Room wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And you know we love hearing from you, and we want to keep hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment, and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf N. The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman, and it is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdall and Kate Levitt. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto, and we'd like to extend a big thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help. And as always, The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We'll see you next week.